Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey, it's Anthony here, and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. It's always great to have you join me here. Often when I meet people who listen to the podcast, they'll tell me how it's now become part of their weekly routine. I know that some of you are listening to this on your daily run or at the gym. Others are driving to or from work, and others are out walking the dog, amongst other things. But regardless of where you are or what you're doing, it's always great to have you listen in. My guest on today's podcast is Suzanne Post. Suzanne is a hairdresser. She's also a salon owner and the co-founder of Sheer Haven, an organization whose purpose is to educate stylists and beauty professionals about the signs of domestic violence. In today's podcast, we will discuss what exactly is domestic violence and who does it affect? How do you recognize the signs of domestic violence, the impact that COVID has had on it, and the free training program that is now available to hairdressers globally to help them recognize the issues around domestic violence, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Suzanne Post. Good morning. Hi, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, for being on the show today. So I'm going to break with tradition a little bit. I usually get people to introduce themselves, but uh, uh, I'm going to uh, introduce you um, to sort of, you know, set the scene a little bit and give people a little bit of background information uh, before we, um, you know, launch into the sort of question and answer component of the podcast. So uh, Suzanne is a salon owner. She's a hairdresser in Nashville, Tennessee in the United States. And as well as being a hairdresser, she also describes herself as a survivor of domestic violence. And Suzanne is the co-founder of the Sharehaven Initiative, which educates hairstylists and beauty professionals about the signs of domestic violence. Now, I know that I can be a little intense and sometimes very direct in my questions. And today we're going to talk about domestic violence, which is one of those issues that is sometimes happening right under your nose. And One of the reasons why it goes on in plain sight is that to varying degrees, there is a culture of mind your own business mixed with fear, shame, denial, and hopelessness around it. And one of the ways of dealing with it, I believe, is to talk openly about it and to ask questions that shine a light on it. So I just want to reassure the listener that I'm not being insensitive in any way or asking questions that Suzanne isn't happy to talk about. So now that I've said that, we can uh, get into uh, the podcast proper, so to speak. And I want to start off by asking Suzanne to share some statistics around the subject of domestic violence. So Suzanne, over to you. What are some statistics that you can share with us to sort of put everything into context here today? Well, I found once I started digging into the subject myself, as I began uh, working with the local YWCA in Nashville, that the statistics were really staggering to me. Um, One in four women, statistically, will experience domestic violence in their lives. 
and one in seven men. Um, I know that in Tennessee, that 50% of all of the calls that law enforcement receive are domestic violence related, which that was a really surprising statistic to me. It's a really prevalent issue, not just here in the U.S., but really globally. And it's um, I've heard that it actually affects one in three women globally. And so it's a very underreported issue. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's probably even a little bit more prevalent than what we what we think it is. Yeah. So just to be clear on that, when you say one in four women and one in seven men, are we talking about when we talk about the men uh, experiencing domestic violence, are we talking about from their uh, wife, as in a a female partner, or are we referring to same sex relationships? So both, both. Um, We've found that a lot of men will actually experience it in the home as children. Mm -hmm. Um, Some certainly experience it from their female partners. Some of them experience it in same-sex relationships. So the answer is yes, all of the above, sadly. Um, It is something that uh, a lot more people experience than what we think of. You know, a lot of people think of the movie, portrayal of what domestic violence is. And it's so much deeper than just the the bruises that often come to mind. Yeah. Okay. So when you talked about those statistics, uh, and I was doing a bit of research on this before when we jumped on the call, one of the things that made me just really sit back in my chair was a statistic that the leading cause of death in women under the age of 40 is domestic violence. I mean, that just like I mean, if you'd asked me what I thought that might be, I would have probably said cancer or car accidents or, you know, whatever. And and to think that it's the leading cause of death in women under the age of 40. And am I right in saying that at least 50% of them, it's with their partner? That is my understanding. That is, yes. I know that in Tennessee, again, to speak about statistics, Part of what really drew me into getting involved here locally was that um, I knew that at the time we were in the top 10 in the nation at the rate that women are killed by men. Right. And so it's a huge, huge issue. Yeah. Not a not a statistic that you, you know, want, basically, uh, Mm -hmm. being in the top 10. You want to be in the top 10 in a lot of things in life, but you don't want to be in the top 10 for that. Um, Absolutely. how, How is domestic violence defined? Because you just said a minute ago that something about, you know, often it's characterized by the bruises that you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that is just the outward, you know, sign of domestic violence. And as you mentioned, also, it's often how it's portrayed in terms of, you know, movies, etc. Uh, but, but domestic violence is a lot more than just physical violence, isn't it? So how, how, how do you define what uh, domestic violence involves? So domestic violence is actually it's a, a cycle of power and control. And so it is a cycle that often will start with kind of a honeymoon phase, something that is the um, infatuation sweetness, the part that really uh, loops you in that uh, 
is the nice, lovely part of the relationship. And then it moves into more of a tension building phase, which Mm -hmm. then moves into what we categorize as the explosion. And that could be a, um, an emotional outburst. It could be verbal. It could actually be a withholding. It could be a withholding or a withdrawing of someone's affection or attention, or it could be a physical outburst, which again is kind of what people think of when they think of domestic violence. But it can be emotional, it can be verbal, it can be financial, it can be sexual or physical. So there are many manifestations and a lot of a lot of them overlap. You know, a lot of them might start as more of a verbal abusive situation and then over time move into a different manifestation, you know, a physical or uh, financial so when you say financial, do you mean like controlling? So you're taking someone's money away from them. You're you're making them more and more dependent on you. Right. Okay. Precisely. And so, and so all of that, even though you may not have laid a finger on that person, is still characterized as domestic violence. Exactly. Manipulation, control, power, etc. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well. Um, I know you're happy to talk about this. You described yourself as a survivor uh, of domestic violence. And and even that that term in itself, it it just makes you realise that, yeah, not everyone survives, you know. Um, What did that look like for you personally? Well, for me personally, on July 5th of 2008, I left my abuser And he was my then husband. He was the father of my two-year-old son. And after I decided to leave, I was in um, an abusive relationship. He threatened to take our son and that I would never see him again. He threatened to kill me. He threatened to kill anyone who helped to keep us safe from him. I know firsthand exactly how scary and just how isolating that is Mm -hmm. to be in that kind of relationship and how to leave one. And I had to act quickly. We had to go into hiding. We moved six times in six weeks. And I actually had to hire a um, armed security guy to be with us. And I got an order of protection, which is basically a piece of paper that doesn't keep you very safe. You have to be willing to call the police if someone violates the order of protection. And that was basically when I decided to get the armed security. And ultimately, my husband actually took his life. Which was you know, a very complicated and scary process in and of itself, a a devastating outcome that Mm -hmm. um, was part of our story. You know, it was ultimately, I knew that we were lucky to actually be alive, although he took his life Mm -hmm. because the threats that he made were quite serious. And all at the time, I had also just opened a business And so I was navigating this um, very difficult process while 
being behind the chair while being a salon owner and while keeping a safe space for all of my clients and my uh, colleagues. Mm-hmm. And so I know that's pretty heavy. I've, um, I've shared bits and pieces of that story, but I think it's important that people know that through careful planning, through immense support from people that were sort of that mirror for me at that point, that there is beautiful life on the other side of it and that there's hope on the other side of it. Um, but it, it can be uh, overwhelming and very isolating and very scary when you're actually in that place. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, I'm sorry you had to go through that. And I'm certainly not uh, happy that anyone has taken their life. Uh, that they felt that that was the only way out of it. But at the same time, it must, there's a lot of people out there whose partner is still looking for them years on, you know, that they are always looking over their shoulder, aren't they? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that, that it's sort of, it's never finished, you know, that they're always living in, in right. uh, some state of fear. I, I saw a movie and I wish I could think of it. I only saw it recently. It was, uh, you know, it was a, a Hollywood movie. It was a, it was a very good movie on Netflix. Um, and it was about a young woman who was in a abusive relationship. Um, and she left and she, you know, just packed up and grabbed the baby and, and hopped in the car and, and went to this shelter. And as you were talking, and telling me your story there, I, I was thinking about something that was said in that movie. And I don't know if this is factual, so I, I'd love to know what your uh, insight on it is. And the the woman who was in charge of the shelter in the movie said to this young lady that it's not that you've just left once and now it's all behind you. She mm-hmm. said, on average someone in an abusive relationship will leave and go back six times. And that absolutely floored me that, you know, I would have thought it's, it's hard to go once, but to keep going back again and again and again, is like in, incredible. Um, talk talk well, to us a little bit about that. That is a, that is such an important statistic, both from a perspective of the the person who's in the relationship to not lose hope and not give up if they are in that cycle and they feel like they cannot get out. And for various reasons, some people may go back because financially they don't feel secure enough to to leave and be on their own. It might be that um, the, the abuser has made some pretty serious threats against someone that they love. It may be that they have hope. They love their abuser and they have um, hope when they see them move back into the honeymoon phase and make promises that things actually will get better. Yeah. Um, yeah. So on one hand, I think it's a very important statistic to emphasize for the person who's in the relationship, but also for the person who cares about their friend, their client, their colleague, their uh, sister who's in the relationship and who they're frustrated watching go through this process. Mm-hmm. They think it's, it should be so black and white. Um, it's not healthy. It's 
scary. It's, you know, all of the reasons that they want for that person to leave and get help and stay out of the relationship, just knowing that it, it may take a few times and to keep that line of communication open and to still offer enough grace that they feel comfortable coming to you to be that safe space for them, to be able to have that conversation because uh, often people get frustrated and it's hard, you know, you watch someone keep going through the same cycle again and again. And you think, Oh my goodness, for the love, you know, just leave. And yet it's not always that easy. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's like addiction, isn't it? When you see someone, whether they're an alcoholic or drug addict or whatever, the addiction is, is that you, if you're not the addicted person, you're looking at them saying you have to stop. And once they go into rehab or whatever, and they come out of it, you think, right, we tick that box, it's now move on. And you can't believe when they slide back into it. And there's a feeling of, well, I've done what I can, it's up to you now, sort yourself out. So what you're saying is, you, you, you know, is that statistic true, what I said? Six visits. It is six true. Attempts. Wow. It is up to six times on yeah. average. So it could be more than six times. Or, yeah. You know, some people, of course, get out upon their first or second try, but um, absolutely, that's true. I mentioned the movie I saw. I, I want to, you know, just come back to that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of people have a stereotype um, version of what they think domestic violence looks or sounds like. Uh, is there a stereotype in terms of the age, in terms of the income level, the cultural background, the you know, the demographic, you know, situation? Is there a stereotype for who's most likely to be involved in domestic violence? I. I think there is. And I think a lot of it is portrayed by um, movies and books and, um, you know, series that depict a certain uh, view, you know, often in our in-person classes, pre-COVID, when we would actually gather in salons in person, we would throw out the question, you know, what do you think of when you think of domestic abuse? And usually the response would be bruising, you know, bruises or cuts or um, someone who physically is abusive. And, um, you know, a certain, you know, maybe someone who's not as strong, you know, the the weaker person or a, uh, I don't know, sometimes people would say the less affluent, which Mm. there's some truth to certain aspects of how, abuse looks different depending on the resources that someone might have in their community. And so it may affect people uh, in different ways, depending on where they are or um, what community they're in. But let me say that domestic abuse affects people across the board, regardless of their demographic Mm. at the rate that we spoke of earlier, the one in four women, one in seven men, Mm. and um, across the board. So yeah. regardless of the neighborhood, regardless of their you know, race or any socioeconomic situation, it's, it does not, um, it does not, what is the word I'm looking for? It doesn't discriminate. Yeah, okay. So it's more hidden away. It's like, it is. You know, um, there was a TV and show. And also people will think of exactly the angry person behind the wheel, the angry person at the grocery store. 
those people may have anger issues, Mm. but that is different than an abuser. Abuse is all about control. And so often if you see the actual anger out in public, you know, if you see the person who is exhibiting um, actual angry signs to their partner in public, then likely it's actually gotten to a quite serious point. You know, usually it's something that's pretty covert. And a lot of the abusers might even be the quite powerful people in the community, the CEO or the, um, you know, the very successful, uh, well-regarded, even philanthropic person in the community. But it's all about the power and control. Yeah. And those people that are, you know, the more successful people, for want of a better word, in the community, the more high profile people, you know, the judge, the lawyer, the accountant, the CEO Mm -hmm. or whatever, in their relationships, they're not immune to being abusers. It's just not as public. It's maybe more manipulative. It's maybe more in private, more secretive. Would I be right in saying that? Exactly. It's it's less public, unfortunately. Okay. Um, Is there any truth to the thing about abusers uh, or, sorry, the abused more likely to become abusers? So if you're a child or, you know, a young teenager or whatever, and you're being abused as you grow up and then you're in a situation, are you more likely to become the abuser? I will say that abusers, most people are not born abusers. Yeah. Abuse is something that is experienced and that's taught through behaviors. You know, often it'll be an environment or an example that someone's given as a child, you know, or as a young adult. Um, It might be the the only example of relationship that someone was given, or they may have been the person who um, had thought that that was what love looked like, Mm. you know, That was what the example was given to them from their parent, from their step-parent, from a sibling, from um, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend. And so often you're right. It could be someone who actually experienced it. Not always, but but often. Right. And that's the only role that they, or the role model that they have. They sort of behave like that because I think that's how you behave. They're almost Mm -hmm. pre-programmed for it. You know, when we go back to the way it's portrayed on movies and stuff, you will often see an incidence of violence and then, you know, and the house gets trashed and there's yelling and screaming and someone gets slapped or whatever it is. And then the next day the abuser is in tears and they're begging forgiveness and, you know, it'll never happen again. It was because I was drunk or whatever it was. So there'll be a, a story to it. What I want to ask you is, is that in your experience do you think that abusers ever change or is it like no you've crossed that line once I'm not coming back because I know it's going to happen again it's just a lot of matter of how long I will say that of course there can be change Mm. but there has to be that desire and that willingness and that vulnerability to actually really dig in and do the work. And something that I've also learned by doing this work, by doing this education, is that 
a lot of people meaning well will recommend that someone seek out couples therapy. They'll hear that there's an issue in a relationship with someone that they love and they'll say, well, why don't you guys do therapy together? Which is wonderful that therapy has become so uh, widely accepted and embraced. But if someone is in an abusive relationship, individual therapy could be quite impactful and quite healing and uh, can help transform someone's life. But couples therapy can actually be quite detrimental because if you think about the environment, if, if someone is in an abusive relationship and they go into a couple session with their abuser, often the um, either the abuser will kind of maintain control of the entire narrative and the conversation mm-hmm. and gaslighting may be occurring, which might mean that they are kind of blaming the abused person as the reason that things are awry and things that are not quite right. Mm. Or if the person who's being abused feels comfortable enough to actually open up and be vulnerable enough to talk about what's really going on, there can be quite serious implications when they leave. You know, that can be a, um, it can be horrible. And Mm. so the abuser may get quite angry that they sort of let someone behind the curtain and they may feel like they're losing control. And so I've, I've learned to really recommend people do more individual work rather than couples work in that situation. But the perpetrator could certainly be the one to seek out some serious work. I, I don't think that people want to be in those relationships. I don't think that anyone really deep down feels good if that's the situation they're in, you know, and I think a lot of people would rather break that cycle, maybe just don't know how. Yeah, sure. What's the role typically of drugs and alcohol in uh, instances of domestic violence? Is it, is it always a given or is it a high percentage of the time? No, I mean, someone who you or I having a drink do not suddenly become abusers. People that are abusers are have a deeper issue going on. Now, drugs and alcohol can play a significant role in escalating a situation or um, uh, kind of putting gasoline on a situation, putting mm-hmm. throwing gas on the fire. It can possibly make things much, much worse. But it's actually a myth that if someone has a problem with drugs and alcohol that getting them clean and sober will then cure the abuse problem. That is not true. Mm, And so that's actually a myth that I also have learned quite a bit about in doing this work that um, while it can play a part, it's not necessarily the culprit. Yeah. Yeah. Often, you know, again, I hate referencing movies and stuff as as uh, uh, my resource material, but, you know, I've never uh, witnessed firsthand uh, what it's like to be inside an abusive relationship. But uh, what you often see is the impact that it has on children. Um, talk to us about that as a child being in an, a relationship that is with the mother and father, uh, you know, abusive to each other. Um, let's assume physical abuse. What what sort of impact does that have on children? 
It has a, a deep, deep impact. Um, I know that like we had touched on earlier with the one in seven men or even the one in four women, often people in those categories have experienced it in the home as children, or even if it's as almost secondary abuse, you know, they may not be the one that is focused towards, but they are very sensitive to the fact that, you know, kids are so perceptive and are so shaped by their environment. And so, um, that can have a a deep impact on children. And the other complicated part is, you know, sometimes people have kept it hidden enough from their children that children may not be fully aware of what is going on. You know, perhaps uh, the incidents, the fights or the, you know, the abusive situations happen after the children are in bed. You know, a lot of people feel like their abuser is actually quite a good parent. Mm. And that can complicate the situation when people are trying to leave if they have children. Yeah. And so, um, but being really mindful of the impact that abuse does have on children, it's it's immense. Mm. Well, it often seems to be the catalyst for mm-hmm. typically the woman to leave, to grab the kids mm-hmm. and I'm out of here in the middle of the night, so to speak, you know. Um, the the safety of uh, mm-hmm. and the desire to want to protect their children and to get them away from that, um, which brings us on to the whole situation of the last two years during COVID. Um, how has COVID made it worse? Because I know it has everywhere. Again, you hear that you uh, know, it has. It's created a huge problem. Talk to us about that. Um, well, I've heard people actually speak of the issue of domestic abuse as being the shadow pandemic within the pandemic. Mm. Um, As we know, with lockdowns over the past year, the last year and a half, I guess we're over a year mark at this point, but, you know, so many people are just not safer at home. Suddenly people that had a little bit of space from their partner with um, someone being able to leave and go to their office or even, you know, their spouse or their boyfriend or girlfriend being able to go and, you know, go to the pub and watch a game or um, having some sort of distance from one another. Suddenly people were truly isolated within their home. And so it really, I know here in the U.S. or here in Tennessee, calls to the hotlines and the shelters went up, I believe, 55 percent during the actual lockdown. And by the end of the year, they said they were up an average of, say, 35 percent. And of course, they're already really high. And so it really did increase both that isolation and just the incidents. You know, think about the additional stress that we were all under and the fear. You know, it just really um, was a tough season around this issue. Mm, Okay, well. I know that you have uh, done something about that, and I want to talk to you about that because uh, uh, you've developed this training program um, in conjunction with the YWCA, which is a, a worldwide organization. Uh, talk to us about this training program and uh, and what exactly it covers and who it's for, and uh, let's dig into that a little bit. Yes. So in 2017, I had heard about 
an initiative or a, a law that had been passed in another state in Illinois that was requiring domestic violence training for beauty professionals. And given my personal experience as a survivor, plus my professional experience in um, as a hairdresser and a salon owner, it truly just, it stopped me in my tracks. Mm -hmm. It was something that was so brilliant to me. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, that is absolutely the best idea I had ever heard of. And so I knew that this was something that just on a local level, I needed to initiate and get started here in Tennessee. Again, you know, knowing the statistics the way that I did about how we were, I believe at the time, fourth in the nation at the rate that women are killed by men. And so I approached the local YWCA and said, you know, we, we need to get this going. And so we started as almost a grassroots effort going salon to salon. And we had, you know, I had personally friends that were gracious enough to open their doors and wanted the education for their, um, their staff. And it very quickly became evident that it was something that needed to be larger, that it needed to reach many more people than I could do at that rate, you know, on my day off in a salon, you know, one by one, I knew that we needed to really spread this initiative. And so um, we started working on legislation here in Tennessee. I approached a, a lawmaker in my area and said, is this something that we can pass, that we can actually mandate? And uh, we worked to get a law passed that actually goes into effect on January 1st, next year, 2022, that will now require every licensed cosmetologist, barber, esthetician, nail tech, uh, natural hair braider, and everybody in school for all of these um, professions to be educated with up to an hour of domestic violence training. And through the pandemic last year, I was able to connect with a very key player in the the training that we have as we know it, the Shearhaven training, that was Leslie Rosti from Barbicide. I was asked to be on the reopening committee here in Tennessee to help um, open up businesses through the pandemic and connected with Leslie, who is um, the lead educator for this leading disinfectant company. And so they were key in helping all of us as beauty professionals know how to get back to work after being in lockdown. They were the ones that were giving us all of the safety information about um, how to disinfect and the power of, you know, distancing and just all of the measures that we were able to incorporate so that we could safely work again. And after meeting her, it occurred to me that they would be the most perfect partners to offer this sort of training on their platform so that we could offer a virtual training, which was also hugely important through COVID when suddenly we couldn't meet in large groups in person, obviously, um, to be able to offer this training, which we've condensed into a 25 minute training. It's quite concise. And people can just log on online, do the training from anywhere in the world. And Barbicide said, 
We would love to host this training, but it cannot be Tennessee specific. Our audience is not only wide through the U.S., but we are worldwide. We are a global company. And so it's been quite amazing to be able to extend this training to the beauty professionals around the world. And I've really been touched at how people have responded to it and how people have um, the impact that it's been able to make to people in this profession around the world. Fantastic. Yeah, well, that was the important, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was that, um, you know, you are represented there in a, in a 101 countries, you know, so this, mm -hmm. this certification for this training is available everywhere. It's not just a Tennessee or an American thing. It is a, a global issue. It's a global problem. And this is a global resource. I went online and I did the training myself. Um, and it was short and sharp and to the point. And, and what did it do? Well, it just raised the level of awareness. And I think that, that that's why I wanted you on the podcast. It's like, well, what can I do to help this? You know, and it's like, well, I have an audience. So, you know, I can I can interview you. I enjoyed talking to you and I I, I liked the way you were coming at it from. So um, I think everybody can uh, can do something. Everyone can take part in this. Uh, so this is a free virtual training. It's offered online through barberside.com through their uh, website. And it's a fully automated thing, isn't it? There's video, there's a few questions, and then there are links for um, resources and people, because obviously you are not a coaching company. You are not a, you don't provide therapy, but you provide links through is it through the world health organization where if you click on that link you can choose what country you're in and they can then point you in the direction of resources that might be able to help have i have i got the, the gist of that right yeah exactly okay. so it's a 25 minute training that is a video uh video dv 101 so basically we help you recognize the signs of domestic violence and then give resources and tools about how to address the situation that you might be seeing or intuiting um, as a beauty professional. And to speak quickly to why hairdressers, why beauty professionals, isolation is such a key component in domestic abuse. Like that is one of the biggest signs of abuse is through a cycle of power and control the abuser wants to kind of isolate you from um, your closest friends, your family members. And mm. often the only consistent relationship that someone may have is that with their beauty professional, their, their hairdresser, their um, skincare therapist, their nail tech. And so it's the safe space. And we all know how special the relationship is between the client and the beauty professional. We have consistent, you know, whether it's every two weeks, every four weeks, every six weeks, we build close relationships with our clients. That's what makes us so special. And so we are in a really interesting position through the gift of touch too. You know, I feel like people open up in a different way to us than yeah. they do most anyone. We're close yeah. enough, but we're not too close. 
People don't feel like they're too exposed or too vulnerable. Like they might, if it was their mm. sister or their brother or their yeah, yeah. Um, parents. And so yeah. through this training, we give people resources of how to recognize it, what resources they may be able to even reach out to get advice because every situation is so different. Mm -hmm. um, you might have someone in your chair. I've had stories come in after people have taken the training of how in hindsight, they could see that they knew something wasn't quite right, that um, they had a guest that would come in all the time with their partners sitting in the car waiting on them mm. or even in the waiting room with them. They would um, have a coworker perhaps who had lots of unexpected cancellations. You know, they went through a season where they kind of called out a lot. They were sick or they um, suddenly had shifts in their appearance. They might have worn more makeup than usual or a lot less than usual. Maybe their partner uh, put pressure on them saying, who are you dressing up for? You know, why are you getting so fancy every day? You know, who are you yeah. trying to impress? And so there's a lot of signs that might not quite feel right, but that you couldn't quite put your finger on. And so we just help for people to know what that looks like and even what not to say as much as what to say, how not to respond. Mm -hmm. It might be something that you don't really have that window for a period of time. And the right thing to do is to actually not insert yourself or say anything. And we definitely encourage people not to necessarily be the therapist, but mm -hmm. to direct someone in need to the therapist you know, be able to direct people to resources that can help them without someone getting involved in a way that may not be appropriate for them. And so yeah. the resources that we have on the website, a lot of them are downloadable. You can find your regional resources. We have tear sheets that you could print out and actually put in the bathroom or the changing room that have hotlines on them and have signs of domestic abuse that people can recognize if they're you know, if they hop into the restroom or into a changing area. And I tell people to go ahead and print them off and tear off one or two of the numbers so that people also don't feel like they're the first one grabbing the number, mm -hmm. you know, but people can even take a picture of, or, um, you know, if someone's in the room by themselves, they could jot down the number in a covert way without someone necessarily seeing them. It kind of adds that layer of privacy. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I when when you said to me that you know it's about training hairdressers to recognise the signs of domestic violence, I mean straight away you just think of bruises again, as you said right at the mm -hmm. opening of the show. You know, it's about they have a black eye constantly. They they are often looking battered, um, mm -hmm. or as you just said, excessive amounts of makeup covering up bruises and. And vague, embarrassed stories about how they slipped in the shower or slipped on the stairs or something. And yet it's a lot more covert than that, isn't it? It's like their partner is always there, always in the waiting room. Um, there's there's lots of things that you would never that I would never have thought of. But then as you said it, in hindsight, you sort of had this feeling that, yeah, there was something a bit odd. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. That's that's really interesting. Okay. Um, what about 
turning this around and talking about the role that men have in this in terms of men understanding why this happens what 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 is there what is there for that for men how do you train men to understand why this happens and what is and isn't healthy masculinity or you know dominance in a relationship or whatever it is um what what can you speak to about that well it's interesting that you asked that because actually we are working on a part two for our sheer haven training as we speak that will be a more of a barber specific or um, male specific training that will also focus on the signs of domestic abuse and domestic violence, just what it is, but also a broader conversation about um, healthy masculinity and just how to how men should be respectful and how to have these conversations um, if if something doesn't feel right. They may see the perpetrator in their chair. They may be, you know, co-workers with someone. There might be a healthy way to kind of shift conversations if if something's going in a not good direction. And um, just getting resources out there to men who might be in a situation that they need help for. Um, I feel like the more we talk about it, the more we open up conversations and just take away stigma around any subject like this. Mm. It it's good. You know, it, it's healing in our communities to have people know that they're not alone and that uh, they're not stuck where they are forever, that there's help and there's resources and it can be so confusing and so scary to be the person in that situation. Mm. And uh, knowing that, yes, that there's, uh, there's support out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. I, I totally agree. You know, by, by shining a light on it, you're not normalizing it, but you're not hiding it. You're, you're making it a topic of, conversation that isn't about you have to choose your words so carefully it isn't about shame um it shouldn't unless you're the abuser that might be about shame for you but you know to be in an abusive relationship you know you you have to be confident to talk about it and to seek help and 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 not to feel that you're the only one so the more you know the more um we can shine a light on it as a topic maybe the more people recognize that yes this isn't healthy what is happening in my relationship and i need help and he or she needs help yeah i think too that the point that you touched on earlier about how many times it may take for someone to actually leave Mm. i think that some people sadly do experience shame around the fact that they went back to a relationship that they're in that same situation again for the third time for the fifth time and I really want to um, start cha- shifting that conversation and shifting that energy around it because that is not the case. I mean, it's just such a complicated, confusing situation to be in and such a scary situation to be in and overwhelming. And especially if you think about in the times that we are right now with COVID a situation that was already complicated may be extra complicated. You know, people might 
have additional financial stress because they've been in lockdown or have not been able to um, generate the income that they're accustomed to generating. There might be housing shortages that make it more difficult to get their own place on a dime if they needed to. Um, it's just an even more complicated situation with that shadow pandemic within the pandemic. Mm, And so really we all need to just as human beings extend a little extra grace to each other through this period across the board, not just about this topic, but just in life, you know, it's none of us are always at our best or our strongest through this past year. And so that's the part that I really want to, um, I hope that this training kind of hits the world at the right time for that sort of energy shift. Sure. Okay. Uh, I know, you know, before I started talking to you and I was doing a little bit of research, one of the questions that's always very sort of dominant is, is, well, why is the hairdressing industry a focus for this and I know you've already touched mm-hmm. on it and you know the, the, the way I answered it to myself was was that that hairdressing as an industry is very well positioned to deal with this because if you think about you know hairdressers 90 percent of them are female to start with um, if you think about the salon environment um, it, it is a safe space for women to talk mm-hmm. you know by and large as you said there's that that physical uh, touch thing which breaks down a lot of barriers there's an intimacy that you have with your your hairdresser or beauty therapist mm-hmm. or whatever and in a lot of cases there is a long-term relationship with that person so all of those mm-hmm. things you know lend themselves you know towards the salon environment actually being a very uh, good environment for this to um, you know to, to coexist, so to speak. But mm-hmm. what I wanted to ask you about, and, and you already touched on this when you talked about your own business, you sort of alluded to the fact that you were concerned about the safety of not just yourself, but your own team members and clients in the event that something happened at work that in, directed at you that impacted on everybody else. So what I want to ask you about is if you have a team member who you suspect is being abused? What what should you do if you're if you're a salon owner or a stylist that's working in a salon and you know that one of the other girls is being abused and whatever that means to you? What what should you do or say? Well, I think that really utilizing the resources, the professional resources that are out there, are important. I know that here in Tennessee, the YWCA offers a crisis line that people can call, I could call, Mm -hmm. if you were in my chair and, or if you were my coworker and I was concerned about you or didn't quite know how to support you, I could call that crisis line and speak to a trained professional myself Mm -hmm. and get specific advice for your situation. I could also, you know, approach you with, if we were close enough, if we had that sort of relationship with the hotline number for you to call. And I know that based on my relationship with my friends that work at the YWCA, there's situations where they've had someone call and work with them, you know, sometimes daily for months on end for years on end at times. 
to really safety plan and make a, um, a, a safe decision based on their circumstance. And so it's, I know it's a tricky, overwhelming situation, but let's be honest with these statistics, anytime there's a group of at least four women, there's someone in the group that has at some point been in the situation. And so knowing that this is not something that's a new issue, this is something that is very prevalent. And so having resources and having support and utilizing that support is the safest thing that you can do. Um, I know that a lot of people will never approach law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that a shelter may be the right mode for them, it might be, um, you know, there's not a black and white obvious answer that's a one size fits all. And that's where really utilizing, you know, the UN, the YWCA, I know in in uh, the U.S., there's a hotline that is more of a national hotline that can direct people to regional resources. Mm. Um, really just utilizing all of the support that we have out there and making sure that it's really widely accessible and available. Okay. Um, so, so I don't know if that answers your question exactly. It does. It does. And it, it leads into the next things I was going to ask you. But But, I mean, the bottom line with that about if you've got a colleague who you feel is being abused is to, is, is to make sure that they have the, that you point out the resources and the help that is available to them and, and, and that they shouldn't yes. just suck it up and think this is normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to finish up by asking you some very direct questions to the person who is listening to this to start with, what would you say to someone who is listening to this who is in an abusive relationship. They're driving the car or walking the dog when they listen to this podcast and they're thinking, that's me. What, what would you say to them? What, what one bit of advice or a couple of bits of advice would you say to them that they need to do? I would say, first of all, you're not alone. I know that it's a very isolating, scary, confusing situation. And knowing that you know, a lot of people don't recognize it until they start hearing the signs. They think they're just in a bad relationship. They don't realize it's an abusive relationship. And there's a lot of overlap in even the best, most healthy relationship. You know, people are going to have disagreements at times or not see eye to eye at times or have stressful periods. But recognizing that pattern of power and control is a big issue knowing that they can safety plan and utilize the resources, call and reach out and get professional advice. Yeah. Okay. No matter where you are. Exactly. No matter where you are. What what, what about, again, you know, talking directly to that person who is the abuser, male or female, who's listening to this, what would you say to them? I would say, you don't have to be that person. You don't have to stay in that place either. There are resources out there to help you. I know that in the UK, there is, um, I believe on the Refuge website, that there's a place where the person can click to say, I'm being abused 
or I am the abuser mm. that will direct people to resources to break that cycle. Yeah, that's interesting that, that I'm the abused or I'm the abuser. So it's recognizing that the abuser needs help as well. And often they know that they need help and there are re there's resources there for them as well because there's obviously, there's obviously that shame about not just that I'm being abused, but there's also that shame in saying I am the abuser, so to speak, yeah, which, mm -hmm. which must make a lot of people not want to seek that out. Well, I feel emotionally drained um, after the last uh, <laughs> 55 years. Yes, I know. This is a very heavy conversation, but I hope that people listening take hope away from it. Mm. Um, it's a really beautiful conversation to be having and a hopeful conversation because we are in positions to shift this conversation and hopefully bring light and bring resources to people that really need them. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, as I said before, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through all this, but it's it's interesting how what you've gone through and then come out the other end of and how you've managed to now influence and set up this training for people all over the world is, is uh, you know, every cloud has a silver lining, so to speak. It's had a very positive impact and uh uh, good on you for doing that. Um, where can people connect with you, Suzanne, on, on uh, Instagram or other social media channels? Yes. So we'll link um, people to my social media. Let me encourage people that are listening to this or that take the training. At the end of the training, there's a place where you can share your certificate on social media. Mm -hmm. I would love for people to continue if it's impactful to you. If you've completed your training, you can print out your certificate and uh, put it in the salon so that people can see that you are a safe space. You can also share it and um, encourage your colleagues and your friends within the industry to take it. And um, it, it can spread and become just a positive movement within our industry in that Perfect. regard. Okay, well, I'll put uh, those and links. Tag me and tag Barbicide in it as well I, as the white today. Okay, I'll put those links uh, on the website on Grow My Salon Business and in the show notes for today's podcast. So to wrap up, Suzanne, thank you for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Thank you, Anthony. I appreciate it so much. That's fantastic. I appreciate your honesty and willingness to uh, to be so open about this. So thank you very much. I'm sure you've helped a lot of people. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.